0: I'm J.R. Woodward. Welcome to Our Social Landscape.
1: Every morning finds me
0: morning. My guest is Karen Washington, a New York-based food activist. And according to the New York Times urban farming's de facto godmother, who coined the term food apartheid as a replacement for the term food deserts. Before she got involved in the quote-unquote food justice movement, which essentially holds that access to healthy and nutritious food is a human right, she worked as a physical therapist and saw many of her patients, predominantly people of color, suffering from diabetes, obesity, hypertension, and the like. Treatment always involved medication and surgery as opposed to prevention, so she made a career change and has spent years trying to get the food industry and the food justice movement itself to address the root causes of these inequalities. As she has said, it's by design that people of color are denied access to nutritious, affordable food, farm and business opportunities in the industry as well. Most farm subsidies and monies from the U.S. Department of Agriculture go to large white farming operations, leaving small farms, urban plots, community gardens, and the like lacking access to capital or representation in food policies. Food pantries, which distribute food directly to those in need, are stigmatized and are really only supposed to be a stopgap during emergencies, not a full-time source of food. This is what led her to coin the term food apartheid in response to the academically created term food deserts that she views as kind of an outsider term. Deserts occur naturally on the earth, so this gives the illusion that these people are just unlucky that they don't have as much healthy food within walking distance as people in other locales do, and all we need to do is open a fresh market here and there. Truth is, these areas are not randomly created. They're the culmination of historical processes involving institutionalized racism and discrimination, as well as policies aimed at the poor. As she likes to point out, when we say food apartheid, the real conversations can begin. Her efforts have resulted in her winning Essence Magazine Essential Heroes Award, the James Beard Leadership Award, And being named Ebony Magazine's 100 Most Influential African Americans and Forbes' 50 Women Over 50 who are leading the way in impact, among many other honors. We chatted from New York and Jacksonville Beach about some of the links between food, race, discrimination, and social justice, as well as the role of activism, both on the grassroots level and the national level.
1: Everybody knows the morning.
0: So I thought maybe we'd start with just a little bit of your, you know, just kind of your background. You, you have a lot written out there uh, about your background, but if you wanted to to talk about any of it, because particularly when one looks at your bio, you're the leader of or on the board of or former leader of several groups, cooperatives, nonprofits, for-profits, et cetera. So what would you say is the common thread between all these hats you wear or or have worn, you know, in terms of of who you are? What's the like fundamental underlying thread?
1: I would say I'm an activist and a- advocate, you know, for justice, and and an agitator. I would say an agitator. So, um, yeah, and, and and I tell you, I'm just a I'm just an ordinary person trying to do extraordinary things. Okay. And
0: so, you came into gardening after a career in physical therapy.
1: Yeah, well, I was a physical therapist at the time. I think things changed when I um, moved to the Bronx and I bought a house and I had a backyard. And I decided to grow food. And so that was back in 1985. And so I've been growing food for a long time, but really understanding the intersection um, and what, how food plays, the dynamic how food plays in society, looking at the food systems, you know, with an intention of asking the question like, why, you know, why is it that um, we have a food system that... People say it's broken, but I believe that um it's it's doing what it's supposed to is the caste system and um it just it breaks down along so many different lines, social lines, race, demographics and um economics. And this is why I challenge it. I challenge the full system, you know. I'm I'm not just sitting back and just being complacent about it, I've gone to friends who are white and privileged, and I've looked at their food. You go into their neighborhood, and then um, living in the Bronx and looking at food in low income neighborhood areas, totally different. Mm-hmm. And for me, again, to be outspoken about that, you know, why is it? You know, mm-hmm. why also, why is it that we have poverty and, and hunger? Mm-hmm. You know we consider ourselves one of the greatest countries so yeah mm-hmm.
0: so when the usda defines a food desert as follows a tract in which at least 100 households are located more than one half mile from the nearest supermarket and have no vehicle access or at least 500 people or 33 percent of the population live more than 20 miles from the nearest supermarket regardless of vehicle availability now you prefer a different term and a term that the usda has not formally identified i wonder if maybe one day they will who knows right uh, i doubt it at this point but uh, the term food apartheid so could you tell me a little bit about what separates this term like and how you came to conceptualize it where you came up with this idea
1: because when i looked at the definition first of all who defined that term and you know who it was probably some outsider term defining you know a situation which really didn't um peel down the whole context of what was happening in the food system. So if you're just saying that it's uh, because people don't have access to a supermarket or have to, you know, walk or travel a certain amount of miles to the nearest supermarket, it doesn't give an impact. It doesn't give justice to the reality of what is really happening. It's like you know, many of these um, neighborhoods that you talk about, we do have supermarkets. Mm-hmm. We have supermarkets, we have bodegas, we have we have the fast food. I always say all the time, we have the fast food, we have the junk food, we have the processed food, but food <laughs> desert doesn't talk about that. You know what I'm saying? It it talks in, 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 in abstract terms, you know, in your head, you're looking at a desert and you're looking at you know people trying to get to you know. <laughs> so, you know, I wanted to really put vision to I wanted to put angst to it. I wanted people to say, wake up. You know, t- this is what's happening in these neighborhoods. We do have the food. You're not talking about the processed food. You're not talking about the junk food. You're not talking about the fact that we have soup kitchens and and, and food pantries. You, you're not talking. And so food desert doesn't get to the heart of the problem that we have here in society. And so when I coined the term food apartheid, first of all, everybody, all of a sudden, everybody's ears, you know, and eyes are wide, like, like, what does this term mean, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then really talking about, let's talk about the food system. Let's talk about the food system where different areas, different populations of people get different types of food. You know, we we don't talk about hunger and poverty. We don't talk about the economics. We don't talk about Where, you know, if you live in a low income neighborhood, your food is totally different Mm -hmm. in a privileged neighborhood. Or if you are lower income and you can't afford, your food choice is totally different than someone who is affluent. Mm -hmm. And the color of your skin dictates that, too. Mm -hmm. And yet people are afraid to really talk about that. Yes, the USDA, of course, they're going to tiptoe and they're going to try to use terms that sort of sugarcoat things. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is that we have a real problem in the food system. Mm -hmm. We have hunger and we have poverty and food desert does not replicate that. It doesn't talk about that. And so I coined that term because I want people to start Let's like this sort of really peel back the food system. And let's get down and dirty to talk about it in a way that we can find solutions. Because everybody and their mother knows we have a huge problem in the food system. But no one talks about how do we tackle, how do we tackle it so that we can find solutions. <laughs> People have come to me and said, we have food in the desert. You know, so I'm serious. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so it's like, why are you singling us out? Because we do have food. Believe it or not, there is food in the desert. So, sure. you know, like, why are we being picked on?
0: Right. Yeah. I lived in Phoenix for six or seven years. So yeah, I got it. Uh, a couple more terms, vocabulary terms, uh, if you don't mind, like your thoughts on food justice and food sovereignty. And I read an interview years, it's been a year, it's been a little while now, but uh, how those terms were in flux. And I'm sure they probably have still been moved and shaped by by people. So um, the food justice movement, some people might not even aware that it exists, but it might already be past what it started as. So just what your thoughts on those two terms were.
1: Well, I'm glad that you said it's a movement because I've I've found out, you know, quickly as people started to use that term it was being co-opted like everything else sure sure No nonprofits. you know now people look at what's the key word you know food systems are out there people are talking about you know food in a way that is more uh in terms of being you know proactive instead of reactive and so now everyone is using the buzzwords you know first it was food justice and then after a while people start Putting in full sovereignty and so, oh, now it's full justice and full sovereignty without even knowing what the meaning is. And I've and i and the reason why I say that because you know I've been around and been asked to talk to various organizations that use the term in their mission statement and to ask them. So, what do you think full justice is? Well, you know, we haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> And you know, I mean, like, uh, really, come on, folks. And even when I, and even when I go into circles, and in academia, you know, and ask people, sometimes people have never even heard. It, believe it or not, you know, it depends on, sure, it sure, depends on the audience. And so, you know, people will raise their hand, and they will give you the cookie cutter definition. And so I say, well, for me, it's, a, you know, if you want to say it, me personally, it's a transformation of the food system to eliminate some of the disparities we often see in the food system. And I tell people that word transformation means that the food, the food justice move is a movement, you know, it's not a static, it's a movement. And so if you are really talking about food justice, then you have to be actively talking about dismantling the social injustices did you see. And so don't tell me about your work in full justice. Show me, tell me, let me see. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that's one thing. And then when it came to full sovereignty, co-opted because it was a term that was really used for peasants in the global South. Okay. Peasants who for so long have been working on, on, on land issues, um, being self-sufficient, self-reliant. And yet... <laughs> here we go. What do we do as Americans? We are going to just co-op things. And so again, first of all, let's pay homage to the fact that where it came from and then how do we in turn look at full sovereignty when it comes to recognizing people who for so long have had people having power over them are now realizing that the power lies within themselves, within their communities. And now the agency is for them to take back that power so that they have control of of land, they have control of their food, they have control of their well-being. And so um, I think people are starting to to notice that. and People are starting to want that. They're starting to understand the power that they have collectively to have uh, the ability to con- to control their livelihood, to control what ha- what's happening in their local communities. And so but the heart of food sovereignty really is land, land use, you know yeah. Um, yeah. and so I want to sort of stay away from using capitalistic terms of that have, that have been extractive and exploitative of ownership. Um, and that's another topic I talk about too. As I've gotten older, I realize that what do you own? You own nothing. You don't live long enough to own. Oh, you know, you know, it's like really? I, I, how do you how do you hold on to land per se? You know what I'm saying? How do you how do you say I own the land when hmm? Right. You don't live you don't live long enough to own anything. So for me, in the work that I do, I always say that I'm a steward of the land. I want a caretaker of the land. You know, mm-hmm. uh, land has been given to me to to take care of not to own
0: right yeah living here in florida on the coast i live like in jacksonville beach about seven blocks from the beach and you see that all the time with you know private beach you know we own this beach because we live on the this house that lives on this beach and you know two storms from now that beach won't, won't be there and your yard will be in somebody else's yard as the current and the tide and you know the land shifts and moves but you know ownership is uh it's kind of funny here because they do these beach renourishment projects where they Mm kind of usually taxpayer funded Mm -hmm. benefiting some public beaches, but most of it private homes, (laughs) but still, you know, public is, is on the hook for it.
1: Yeah.
0: Could you explain a quote? I came across a quote where you say when community controls its own food sources, the people can control so much more. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think, um, Again, when I talked about the food system, because so many people have been saying that the food system is broken and needs to be fixed. And I used to believe that. I was drinking the Kool-Aid until I finally looked at the food system, or like I said from the very beginning, a care system, and realized that the food system is not broken. It needs to be fixed. And that fix needs to be a shift in power. Mm-hmm. And for so long, so many entities and people have had power over you know communities. And so for me, when you when we talk about um the change, for me, it's shifting power back into the hands of the community. So okay. getting people in their community to understand that they are control of their destiny, that collectively they can make change. And for so long, we have been pitted up against each other. individual ideas, you know, this is what I have, you know, I don't need anything else. And I think people are starting to realize, wait a second, if we can work together, we can change the systems because we can demand change collectively. And so for me, um, that's the shift that I'm starting to see. That's the shift that I'm starting to see. Especially in so many communities that for so long have been waiting for the knight in shiny armor, the white horse to come in, the savior mentality and realize it's never coming because the system wasn't for us or by us. Mm -hmm. And so how do we change it? How do we change within our community? Let's come together collectively and start demanding change. And then the change comes from people asking us what we want instead of what we need asking us what we want comes from a position of power asking us what we need comes from a position of deficit mm-hmm. and so now you're starting to 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 see people coming together and working on their the local the local community because jr the problems that we have the systemic problems that we have are gigantic they're major right, right. and so you know you if 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 you're trying to and hunger and poverty on a large scale, you, you you're going to run out. You're going to be making yourself dizzy. But what you can do is look at local change that you can 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 change. For instance, you know when I was living in New York, I was really working on um, getting the um, council people in my district to look at changing the zoning laws. Changing the zoning laws in terms of limiting the amount of fast food restaurants within a certain area. Why is it that on every block on Tremont Avenue, there's a fast food restaurant, yet the policy is always within low income neighbors and neighbors of color. We have to change, you know, we have this huge health disparity, this problem of diabetes, you know, the gammon, obesity, hypertension, you name it. And yet, you're not addressing. You know, you the solution is right here. You know, and so I've been, you know, heard well. You know, carrying you. If we do that, or uh, you know, you're gonna get people out of business. And I'm saying, but what you can do is invite healthy food op- options. I would love to see a vegan restaurant in my neighborhood, a sure, vegetarian sure. neighbor, you know, restaurant. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so um, collective power is really starting to percolate within the social conscience of the work that I and others are doing. Wow.
0: That would be great. It's, I was going to ask you a question about that later, but it kind of, you kind of have addressed it about, you know, what kind of limitations are there on grassroots work when the problems are so much deeper, you know, in other words, like I always get, I was kind of, it ruffles me a little bit when there just seems to be so much responsibility to make change, put on the people who are least responsible for producing that environment to begin with. But I guess the argument would be, well, you just, you change what you can, where you are, and then, you know, you hope it trickles up.
1: But, but also you make sure the people that you put in office are accountable. <laughs> really? Come on now. <laughs> yeah. it's so, it's, but, it's, but it's so easy. When I was living in the Bronx, I knew everybody. I knew my council person. I knew my senator. I knew my congressman. Why is that? Because I had the gumption. I was going to say balls, but I'm balls. <laughs> but I had the gumption to pick up the phone and say, or email and say, My name is Karen Washington. You know, I'm a resident of your district. Can I come and talk to you? Or when there was an event within my community, invite them. Sit mm-hmm. down and talk, and then and 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 at first it was like, wait a second, are you you bringing a group of people? No, I want a one on one. You know, I voted for you, and so you know, or my community voted for you. So we want to hear exactly what are what are your ideas? You know, what do you have for us? And then also, how can we help? You know, make those ideas come to fruition. So, um, and I and I talk to communities. that's so simple. You know, you vote these politicians and local politicians and you just sit back, complacent, and allow them to, to do what they're supposed to do. And when they don't do it, you're upset. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So something as simple, something as simple as reaching out to your local politicians and have them talk. Mm-hmm come go to them if they don't if they don't come out you you know what i was a community organizer so you know it's like so if they don't come to you you go to them, you go to them. many <laughs> times we've taken bus loads on uh people's spouses or girlfriends or boyfriends and show up in the neighborhoods on bus loads <laughs> and uh all of a sudden because many times it's like we're not going to meet with you you're a little peons it's like okay yeah. so you're not going to meet with us so let's get on buses and go to your neighborhood. And so all of a sudden, the neighbors are really frantic because, oh my goodness, it bustles the of black and brown people in our neighborhood. What's going on? The police would come and the chant, we would say, police need a raise. Police need a raise. And all of a sudden, the police says, okay, folks, there, there we I understand, am. we got you, but you know, you can't be here. We say, you know, we're just here just to put some flyers. We're going to get on a bus and leave. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. That's a great story. As a sociologist, I'm interested in um, like structural, institutional, historical roots of these problems that you're you're discussing. So maybe we could talk about that for just a minute or two. But um, another quote of yours that I'd like to talk about, because I think it gets to the heart of many of these issues, and you alluded to it slightly earlier, was how does our subsidized food system skew the cost and value of food? Because I think that's a, la- a large structural answer to that but um what are some of the links you know kind of like how did we get to this spot how can you can you talk on any of the links back to even say you know slave days through jim crow um i, I read this book called when affirmative action was white by uh, ira katz nelson he's deceased now but he was a political scientist and historian and he talks about all these programs that were created by the federal government, but very few of them actually benefited people of color in the South, particularly. So like the 1935 social security program excluded maids and farmers. Correct, because the South, the seventeen or thirteen states that had legalized segregation, then wouldn't sign off on it without excluding those groups. So that's got to be a step that leads us to food apartheid now. So, like, are there any other like links you think historically? Yes,
1: even even uh, when it came to um, the Fair Housing Act, I remember my father was a soldier in the Korean War, and the Fair Housing Act was supposed to be given to, you know, especially Mm -hmm. soldiers coming back home and trying to get their first house. What happened, you know, history of redlining. Sure. And so my father never got a chance to get a house. We wound up in the public housing, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, in in public housing. So, again, systems that are, that's supposed to be intended to build up the middle class, like Social Security.
0: The GI um, Bill. GI
1: bill. bill. Right, exactly. That's what I really meant, the GI Bill. And um, Fair Housing Act, all these things, Black folks and people of color are were excluded, you know, excluded. And and not, so not in a broad sense, but there was this sub, subliminal and covert mm-hmm. and intentional sure. Uh, sure. making sure that Blacks and people of color were excluded from banks uh, it's banking excluded from loans, excluded um, from housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just trickles down, uh, to even you know, food, you know. Yeah. And I say that because even in the essence of modern, this is now 20 to 21st century, there are still those remnants mm-hmm. that continue to exist mm-hmm. where yeah. again um but i think now with donald trump it's more overt now i think sure. people are bolder now right. to say that you know they don't want certain people uh in their neighborhoods you know mm-hmm. um especially what's happening at the border um and also how um people are being treated when it comes to the environment um t- the toxicity that we see in wasteland um in pollution and where incinerator plants are being built,
0: right, right. Uh,
1: so a lot of that, you know, is is still is is, is happening.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I forgot about that. The the environmental justice, environmental racism piece, like Robert Bullard's book, "Dumping in Dixie." I think is like back in the seventies. First started to expose some of that stuff, and that's got to be a direct relationship as well to where people are living and what they can do course. on their on their own land. You know,
1: yes, mm-hmm. where the dumping occurs. so. You know, even back in, um, I would say. You know, I look back. I was reading this book. The is called "The Some of Us," which is really, really good. And um, so, S U M
0: S U M Some of Us.
1: Yes. Or S
0: O M E. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I have. I've so seen. Good. I've seen that book. I've it seen that so book. It is so good because okay.
1: she breaks down exactly structures, built-in structures that have really caused the dilemma that we have along racial lines. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the things that I read, and again, it just boils down to what is happening today. You know, we talk about 40 acres and a mule. Right. And it happened back in 18, you know, 86. No, I'm sorry, 1865, say 1865, 64, 65. This is when, um, right before Lincoln was assassinated, um, got the general's name. I'm just, I'm tired because I just came back from um, Utah. Just Sherman, sorry. Gen- okay. General Sherman. That's Sherman, that's okay. General mm-hmm. Sherman, exactly. Who was um, given an order. The order was order 15 to hand over over 400,000 acres of land to newly free black uh, slaves and when Lincoln was assassinated, President Andrew Johnson said, hell no, mm-hmm. and took back that order mm-hmm. and gave that land back to whites. Mm-hmm. So I would, So to myself, I always imagine, and maybe part of reparation, that if that was to have happened, what would the state of the United States farmer be now? Right. No, that that was that land at four hundred thousand acres of land taken away from newly free slaves would have made a difference in today's society. And so, when people talk about that forty acres and a mule, in essence, mm-hmm. that's what they're really talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so when you talk about you know looking at as as a sociologist sociologists you know looking at some of the trauma that has happened in the past and still resonates today I look at that when it comes to land use because black farmers in the United States now only only own one percent of wow. farmland one percent one percent right so <laughs> you know yeah. again you know you have these white farmers up in arms when Black farmers are, act, are asking for a piece of the pie, uh, and yet they say it's reverse racism.
0: Right, right. You no, know,
1: yeah. it's just mm-hmm. and 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 it hurts me for farmers to be at the forefront of denying that because I see myself as a farmer with the intention of looking at you know the importance of biodiversity, the importance of biodiversity in plants and in animals. But yet you don't look at the biodiversity when it comes to your own farmers, mm-hmm. your own mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And so again, you know, I'm I'm at a a rock and a hard place um when dealing in food systems in such a way, trying to get my head wrap my head around how racist the system is and how is being of, of white farmers not understanding when black People and black farmers are asking for parity and, and asking for justice and asking for reparations. Um, white people get scared when you start talking about that.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, white people overall, not just farmers. <laughs> right. That's for sure. It is a good segue because I wanted to talk about land for a minute and, it, and also mm-hmm. a different group um, there was an article written a couple, maybe two years ago now. David Trower's article in the Atlantic about um, Indigenous lands,
1: mm-hmm. uh, and it's
0: return the national parks to the tribes is mm-hmm. was, that was the article. It's a really fantastic article, and that, I, I can't. I thought about that as I was preparing for this and reading some of your some of your stuff. Like, yeah, it's you know that that the getting back because I think you had said. You're seeing these Black farmers saying, let's kind of get back to um, the land. You know, let's, let's kind of reclaim land and whatnot. And that made me think there's also this movement going on in Indigenous populations as well to reclaim some of that land. I don't know. What do you think the efficacy of that is? What do you think? I think uh, it's actually,
1: I, I think it's, see, the thing is, again, white people trying to pick Black people and Indigenous people, you know, all of a sudden, like, you know, here Black people talking about land, but, you know, Indigenous people were here mm-hmm, before. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no. We're fighting for the same thing, and right, the thing about right. it is that, and, and the thing about it is that the purpose is again the stewardship of the land. Mm-hmm, White mm-hmm. folks think about the capitalistic view of land. Black folks and indigenous people, you know, we just want to take care of the land. We want to take care of the land so that it, it nourishes our families. You know, we want to take, we want to be stewards of the land. We want to care for the land. We don't want to extract from the land. We don't want to exploit for the land. We want to be able to take care of the land so the land feeds our people you Mm -hmm. know our community and that's where the commonality is but yet again you know as soon as black people start talking about land and reparation it's like yeah okay but what about the indigenous people we're Mm -hmm. fighting for the same thing sure it's
0: divide and conquer divide and conquer yeah
1: yes Mm -hmm. but you know what i i I i took that wrench out and I said, we're fighting for the same thing because at the end, what we're both looking at is how do we work with nature? You know, how do we start healing this planet? How do we start growing food that's nourishing? How do we start taking back the land in such a way so that, you know, we, we pay homage to the fact that the land has given so much and yet it has been abused? So I so when people start talking about that sort of division mm-hmm. I step in and I said, "You know what? That's that's what you're thinking about, but I know what we are trying to do right. is trying to heal this planet."
0: There's a old inter- uh, guy, a senator back in the eight- or 1800s talking about manifest destiny, how we got to have this land because you know oh. why why would God leave um this great fertile land to these kind of you know savage people that don't you know they're below us and then 10 years later we have the dust bowl you know like fucking white farmers just <laughs> you right. know, wiped, wiped it out you know like i think exactly. they knew what they were doing they'd been here about ten thousand years i think they knew what they were doing uh last piece um we've been you know this notion of intersectionality shows up Quite a bit. Um, So I want to talk about the role of women here. Uh, I interviewed recently, uh, maybe a year ago now, a woman named Robin James, who's the gender and equity advisor for the Nature Conservancy. And her whole premise was essentially, until we get rid of patriarchy, we can't finish, we can't fix our environmental problems. Like she was bringing it down to an interesting, deep rooted level. So what role do you think women play? Because I think about the environment and the land, like women are stewards of the land all around the world. But as you've pointed out with some of the food, big food conferences, women don't really have a seat at the table in these international conferences about environmental problems and stuff. It's mostly men, yet women are often the ones really working the land all around the world.
1: Correct. I mean, the majority of women farmers are, I mean, the majority of farmers are women globally. But you know what? You, I mean, look at the world now. <laughs> look at the world. look at how effed up it is. <laughs> you know, I'm serious. And and so, um, and 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 it's women that have been holding down the fort with we have been the glue. And so I think there's gonna come a time whereby women have to really come together and say, enough of this crap. And 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 the change is gonna come from women coming together and making change because we've been sitting back for so long and a lot, especially you know a lot of uh, white women i would say um and i talked to them time and time again i said because black women really hold the brunt you know of, of the trauma that is happening you know and yet we don't hear your voices and so I, you know and i talked to white women and you know i want to hear the outrage that we have when you know, our bodies are abused, our sons are abused, you know, there's Mm -hmm. trauma. Uh, I want to hear your outrage when the mother is crying because, you know, her son has been beaten or her daughter has been raped. Um, I want to hear your outrage when in the the, inner cities where we battle police brutality. There has to be this sort of collectiveness that we need to have so that, we can do the work. and I'm and I'm gonna just give you a perfect example of how things are changing. So, um, in New York state, uh, we were looking at the the full system and who's controlling the full system and realized that in New York State out of fifty seven thousand farmers, only one hundred and thirty nine are black. Wow, and amazing. so white farmers make ten times more than black farmers. Uh, in New York State is like, you know, they're making maybe twenty to, to thirty thousand dollars and black farmers are making like minus five hundred dollars. And so sitting back and trying to wait for the government or people to fix that, we started a black farmer fund. Yeah. Okay. We started a black farmer fund because we said, you know what, first of all, we had a story to tell and in essence we want to be self sufficient and self reliant and we want to help black farmers and black businesses okay. people thought we were crazy but we we we've, we've have accomplished so much with this fund we started first of all dealing with having a fund that is controlled by the community we talked about community right. and so the community coming together with the community and having ideas a say in um the the in deciding uh what farmers and what businesses we this fund could help, uh, being the decision makers, and then coming up a plan whereby we would put a pitch to get funding for it, and then with that money, help eight black farmers and black businesses as a pilot project. Okay. It was mm-hmm. so successful. We're now going into our second iteration. Great. Of giving farmers and businesses grants and loans, but also giving them the ability to understand financial education, Great. which is yeah. critical sure, sure. self-sufficient and self-reliant. So it was a group of women mm-hmm. coming together to say, you know what we cannot wait for the government to save us. they're not saving us right. And so right. let's start a fund which can be replicable can be replicated in other communities. And so I'm proud of being being part of that. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of seeing community coming together and communities, for one, starting to understand the power that they have and the the abundance that they have. You know, for so long, we've always been very critical, have outsiders have criticized low-income neighborhoods. Oh, they're so poor. They need help. Instead of looking at, the strength and resilience we've had dealing with some of the social issues True. and turning that around as strength and fortitude. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so proud of of the Black Pharma Fund what it has done, how much money has a, has money has uh have have gathered, how what it has attained and how people are now looking at our fund as a way of replicating in other communities of color. We did it. Here's the blueprint. Yeah, want to offer to other uh, people in the same um, predicament. So, you know, you you even have you even have the state now asking how did how did you do it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But again, it's really making relationships within the community, bias for us that, that look like us.
0: Right, that's really inspiring. If you had one uh, one magic bullet, you know, one magic lever to pull to effectuate this change that you want to see, what would you say is the most important step? Love and kindness. Love and kindness. All right.
1: Love and kindness. Plain and simple. Love and kindness. And I think we need it so, so much. I was I put it on my Facebook page because I was in Utah and I happened to see a shooting star. Nice. I made a wish on it. Mm -hmm. And that was the wish. Plain and simple. Isn't that plain and simple? I'm not asking. No, nothing, you know, grandiose. Also nothing hypothetical. Uh You know, the simplicity of loving kindness. Can we just have that amongst ourselves as human beings a little bit more? kind of a boy for a girl like me.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Karen Washington. I came across her as a food activist, but after talking to her, it's clear that her activism extends beyond simply the food industry. To be sure, the changes she envisions in food require a complete overhaul of our social patterns and priorities. People of color, particularly in the cities. Have been assaulted by deindustrialization, racist banking and real estate practices, and white flight, residential segregation, racially driven mass incarceration, and continual cuts to public support programs. I don't see a way to address any of these maladies in isolation from the others. Yet, she seems ready to tackle them at a fundamental level, and I hope she gets there. I also hope you enjoyed our conversation, and if you did, please like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. I want to thank her for giving me some time. She keeps a busy schedule, traveling, workshopping, lecturing, and of course gardening, and gardening on a large scale and in multiple cities, so I appreciate it. Sarah Vaughn provided the music with Monin and You're Not the Kind. As an exercise in public sociology, I encourage you to sign up for the blog, which will allow you to make comments directly after each post, and hopefully we can generate some dialogue. If you feel like supporting the blog financially, either with a one-time donation or a recurring monthly amount, you can click on the yellow donate button. If you have any questions or comments, send them to jr at landscape.com. Thanks for listening.